Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. How are y'all doing this morning? We are in Genesis 47. Getting near the end of the, the book here. So... Uh, but if you would, if you'll turn to Genesis 47 with me, you'll remember that, that uh, Jacob and his family are on their way down to Egypt. And Joseph had told them, look, we're going to go to Goshen. Tell them you're shepherds because they don't like shepherds. Uh, you got to wonder what they were thinking when they hear both of those things at the same time, right? Tell them you're shepherds because they don't like shepherds. So we'll, we'll see. We talked a little bit. Uh, even though we hadn't gotten there yet, about why Joseph did that. But we'll, we'll read the chapter this morning and, and see how that works out. So if you'd turn to Genesis 47, why don't I pray and let's read it together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the breadth and the depth of your word, for what it shows to us of your character uh, and of your consistent care and concern and love for your people. We pray that you would help us to read with attention, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds as we do so, that you would bless our time together this morning as we discuss your word, that it would be to our good and to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what, are, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know, excuse me, if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. 
And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. If your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, as it stands to this day. The Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Lots Lots going on in the chapter. What do you see in the first part? That there was an outsiders over kind of Egyptians. Yeah. When we get to the beginning of Exodus, right, there's going to be this deep divide between Pharaoh's court and the Egyptians and the Hebrews who are living there. In fact, Moses will tell us, then there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, I reckon the beginnings of that tension between Egypt and the Israelites, I, th I think it begins here in what happens. But you're right. So Pharaoh is blessing foreigners. What about when Jacob comes? Who blesses who? What does Hebrews tell us, right? Hebrews looks at the interaction between Melchizedek and Abram. And make some comments about who blesses whom. What, if we, what do we do if we take the observations from Hebrews and 
read them into this chapter here. Similar. Yeah. Yeah, because Jacob's doing the blessing, right? Pharaoh is the leader of the known world. He's the one with food, right? Joseph's in his service. Joseph is in de facto command of all of that, but he's still got a boss, right? He's still subservient to Pharaoh in a, in a strict sense. Jacob strolls into Pharaoh's presence and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. That, I think, sounds an important note as we head into Exodus, right? Are the Israelites subservient to Pharaoh or are they independent, right? What does it mean for God's relationship with his people that he brings them into Egypt for protection and provision, right? Are they under, think about claims that Pharaoh makes for himself, that he's the the son of Ra, right? Are they continuing under the Lord's protection and provision? Or are they now under Pharaoh's protection and provision? Who's the one in control? If Jacob comes in and recognizes Pharaoh as an authority over him, then the implications of that might be that they enjoy this privilege. They're saved from the famine because of Pharaoh and not because of the Lord. So I think that's part of what's going on in the dynamics of their, their interaction there. What else do you see? Why haven't they eaten the livestock? Why haven't they eaten the livestock? Good question. They seem to have a lot of animals. Well, they need the animals to work the land. They can't eat just meat all the time, right? We had a similar question when uh, Jacob and his sons are able to send this gift down to Pharaoh that includes all sorts of things you can eat, right? Why don't they just live off of that? Why do they need to go to Egypt to buy grain? Well, they need a balanced diet. They need more than just this. And if you think about the livestock, the livestock needs food too. So they've, they've got to have food for them as well. You get the sense that this is not the beginning of the famine that they're coming to Joseph, right? Because we only hear about a couple of years of their coming. So they've probably stored up quite a bit themselves. But as that runs out toward the end of the famine, they need food. They need food for themselves. They need food for their livestock. And they need seed that they can plant so that they can harvest in the future years. When they're already in a famine, when they come, I mean, it says that they're, the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. So they already know it's kind of going on, I guess, yeah. to come there. Yeah, so Adam, we're, we're maybe halfway through the famine already at that point which was going to be seven years. So. But Pharaoh also blesses his brothers and puts them over, or if it says if you have any able men along them, put them in charge of the livestock. So he's already putting uh, Israelites or Hebrews over his people to you know, take charge of things as well. So yeah. you can see where that could be a dissension among the ranks when you have newcomers coming in here already being placed in positions that are higher than an Egyptian. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a modern parallel, right? Where you have somebody come in and they do a job that nobody else wants to do because all the Egyptians think shepherds are an abomination. But at a time when 
the rest of Egypt is having to sell everything they have, including themselves and their land in order to eat. These Hebrews who came in, never mind that they're, they're doing it as shepherds, they've got a salary. They've got land. They've got food. They've got work. They've got all of these things. And yeah, Pharaoh blesses Jacob's sons and puts them in these positions. But, but then, as we mentioned, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And it's Joseph who's the one doing the work that ends up having the rest of the nation enslaved to Pharaoh. There's lots of ways. There's, there's a whole lot going on in the dynamic of the chapter. Right? His enslaving the Egyptians is saving the Egyptians from starvation. But that doesn't mean 10 years down the road, that's how the Egyptians are going to look at it. That's a good question, because when we come to Exodus, they are. Um, but they don't seem to be here. And part of the reason I say that is because we don't hear anything about them in the second part of the chapter. But the other reason is there's an express mention of Joseph providing for them in verse 12. And so the indication from that would seem to be that they don't need to sell things to get food because of Joseph's position. And then also perhaps because of their service to Pharaoh, they're not subject to the same things that the rest of Egypt has to do in order to provide for their households. But a specific exemption is mentioned for the priests, whereas yes. it's not as explicit. I mean, we're, we're having to read between the lines to assume that the Hebrews aren't servants, rather than having an explicit exception stated. But also, the, um, the difference in this approach versus, say, welfare state is interesting, because Joseph presumably took all of this grain that he had stored up from these people originally, and yet um, kind of counterintuitive to our modern thinking, even though he took it all from them, they need to give him still more in order to get some of it back, which is just interesting. And, and what was that? I mean, it took it off. It wasn't this 20% tax. So did more people come with, I'm assuming, we know Joseph or Jacob came with his brothers and all of their people, and when he gets into the famine after verse 13, is that more Hebrews had come, and it says, when the land of Canaan and Egypt. So everybody that's given their animals and given everything that they have, we have so it's definitely, definitely Egyptians. Um, Hebrews uh, comes from the name of one of Abraham's ancestors, Heber. And so whether that, whether under that term we would include other people who are living up in Canaan and they come down or not, we don't know. We do know that definitely other people from Canaan are coming down to get food. Um, and we do know that often Pharaoh's power and control extends well into Canaan. Um, what Rose was saying, is this kind of the beginning of more Hebrews coming to Egypt to start 
I guess, the exile? So maybe, but I think it's specifically the descendants of Jacob that become the people of Israel that are then brought out of Egypt later. Right. Yeah. So Although a mixed multitude goes up with them, okay. so which could... Okay. So yeah. Let's just stay. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Did you say Hebrew? <clears throat> Hebrew was one of Abraham's sons? Ancestors. Ancestors, not sons. Like okay, Hebrew. Great grandfather. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, what part of Egypt in favor of? He didn't own all of Egypt already. It depends on how you look at it, okay. right? I mean, what part of America does Washington not own? Right. Well, I mean, if you're talking about what they actually hold the title to, that's not very much. But if you talk about where they can exercise control and enforce their authority, well, then it's, then it's a whole lot. Yeah. The Pharaoh, because it's always Pharaoh of Egypt. So if you think of the whole Egypt, and then yeah. according to this, he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't directly own it. Right. So, yeah. In Egypt, right, so the, the name for Egypt in Hebrew is a, is a dual form. Uh, it's not singular, it's not plural. It refers to something there are specifically two of. We don't have a form like that in English. But you use it for things that come in pairs, like hands and eyes and ears and yoke for oxen and things like that. That's because it's referring to upper and lower Egypt. So Egypt on the Nile Delta and then Egypt further up the aisle, the, the Nile, sorry. So we often think about the two kingdoms of Egypt. But Egypt very often extends its territory almost all the way to the Euphrates. And at other times, Assyria or whoever's in charge up in the north by the Euphrates will extend their power almost all the way to the border of Egypt. And the reason for that is the territory that Israel occupies is the land bridge between those two areas where almost always throughout Israel's history, there's some world superpower to their north and east. And then there's a world superpower in Egypt. And they're on the interstate between the two, right? Because if you want to go from one to the other, you can go through the desert and all your people are going to die. Uh, or you can go along the coast through Israel where there's a plain where at that time it was very fertile land so there'd be plenty to drink plenty to to feed your horses and everything and so because of that they're almost always at the mercy of one superpower or the other so when it talks about canaan coming to egypt there's probably a couple of reasons one is it's because the famine extends that far and egypt is the breadbasket of the world i mean rome got most of their grain from egypt they just shipped it to italy but also probably especially because of the famine, uh, Pharaoh is probably able to extend his military control well into Canaan and set up military outposts and maybe have client kings and things like that. It seems to me, Tony, that God has protected the Israelites throughout the thousands and thousands of years. What's going on today over there is no different than what, when this was written, what, 3,000 years ago? 
it, the Israelites, uh, Hebrews, what have you, I, uh, my beliefs are a little bit different than y'all, but I believe that God is in control of the whole deal. And we're going to make it. But it seems like throughout the millennia, he has protected the Israelites. So here, he's fulfilling a specific promise that he's made, right? He made a promise to Abraham in chapter 12, which he reiterated in chapter 15, in chapter 17, in chapter 22. And, and then he reiterated yeah. through the prophets of yeah. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Right, but, but here, he's made that promise to Abraham. He's consistently reaffirmed that promise to Abraham and then also to Isaac and then also to Jacob. And then he has promised to Joseph that he would be with him. And so here his protection is not just some general protection of a people group, but his fulfillment of specific promises that he made to their great grandfather and his reiterated along the way, right? He has promised that he would protect them, that he would provide for him, right? That he would be, uh, if we think about that, the three elements of the promise to Abraham, people, place, and presence. Uh, God would make them into a great nation, right? That people, kings of nations would come from you. That God's presence would go with them as a protection and a blessing. And that God would bring them to a place that he's prepared for them. And this is something to think about. If you remember what happened immediately after that promise was first given. So that promise was first given in Genesis chapter 12. In the, in the first half of Genesis 12. Genesis 12, roughly 1 through 9. What happens in the second half of Genesis 12? Abraham goes to Egypt because of a famine. Right? He goes down into Egypt. Um, he is, right, the promise of being great, made into a great nation in particular is under threat because Abraham's wife is taken into Pharaoh's harem. And, but what's the outcome of all of that? Right, they don't stay in Egypt. What happens when they leave Egypt? He leaves Egypt greatly enriched right, because the Lord intervenes directly with Pharaoh he gets Sarah back. He gets all of these gifts. In fact, he's so loaded down with wealth that when he comes back into the land, he and Lot have to part ways because they have so many flocks and herds that there's not room for them both. Right? They've got to have it where you go one direction and I go the other. And so that stands in the background of this chapter, right? Do they, should they leave the land because of a famine? Right? Because Isaac at one point was expressly told not to leave the land, even though there was a famine. So you remember a couple of chapters ago, the Lord tells Jacob, go down, I will be with you, I will protect you. Just like he did when Jacob got sent back to Mesopotamia to find a wife. The Lord promises to go with him. Let me grab that. That's at the beginning of chapter 46. I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there. I will make you into a great nation. And I've pointed this out before, but it's interesting. It's not until we get to Exodus that 
the descendants of Jacob are called a people, and it's Pharaoh who first calls them a people. So we see promises that have already been made, that have been reaffirmed, that have been carried forward across generations, are being fulfilled in their going down to Egypt. They're being protected. They're being provided for. They've increased already to 70 people plus everybody who's with them that we're not counting. They're going, they're, their provision and protection will allow them to multiply so that the whole bunch of people, when they leave Egypt a little bit later, 600,000 people plus, right? That's men plus women and children, plus the mixed multitude, right? Easily, right? A conservative estimate would be 2 million people. Cause that would be if most of those 600,000 are married and have one kid, right? That's already 1.8 million people or one point. Yeah. 1.8 million people right there. When they, when they leave. Yeah. At the beginning of the Exodus. Well, he's already made them into a great people. And we see okay. that in... That went into the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness or whatever. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we're talking first about the people who leave Egypt in the first place. We're not there yet. And this is one of the things, if you're, if you're reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where we have this promise to Abraham that seems to drive the plot of these books. And we end Deuteronomy with it unfulfilled. God's presence is with them. They've been made into a great people, but we end the book of Deuteronomy on the border of the promised land, on the east side of Jordan, able to see the land that God has promised, knowing that we're about to go in and take possession of it. And the Lord will be with us. And he's commanded us to do that but not yet in the land. It's this, right? It's like every television series, right? The last episode in May always ends with this to be continued. That's this not picked up until the new season in the fall. And Deuteronomy ends like that. And there were jobs when it took them into the promise, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Tom, what was the significance of asking Jacob how old he was? Is there anything to that? That's a good question. I've wondered about that. I, I think the best sense that I can make of that, partly Pharaoh's curious. And I think partly Pharaoh's maybe trying to get one up on Jacob, like trying to feel out, okay, who's this guy I'm talking to? What's his status? What can I boast in that will kind of put myself above him? And, and Jacob just kind of undercuts all of that, partly in what he says and partly in the fact that he blesses Pharaoh rather than waiting for Pharaoh to bless him. It's interesting that he's able to live 17 years beyond that. So he doesn't just come to Egypt and see Joseph and then lay down and not get up again. He's able to enjoy his grandchildren in the midst of God's bountiful provision in the best of the land of Egypt, well beyond the end of the famine. And then he passes away. 
What do we do with his request? By the way, he asks something of Joseph. What does he want from Joseph? What does he make Joseph swear? Bury him in Egypt. Yeah, don't bury me here. Right? This is not where I belong. Now that's hearkening back to what God said to him in chapter 46. Right? In chapter 46, verse 4, the Lord said to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He dies in Egypt. Right? And Jacob doesn't seem to see that as a problem. He doesn't view that as God not keeping his promise. Rather, he sees Joseph's promise to bring him up out of Egypt and bury him in Israel as the means by which God fulfills what he promised in chapter 46. Like you had mentioned months ago, I think when we were talking about um, like tombs being bought, land for graves being bought, that they would want to be buried together in order to resurrect together. And so is this basically like, I want to be back with my, my wives when I'm resurrected. Yes. If you remember, the only piece of land in the whole promised land that Abraham ever owns is that field that he buys from the Hittites that has a cave at one end where he buries Sarah and then he's later buried and other patriarchs are buried. And Jacob wants to be buried there in the land on that family plot so that... And this isn't spelled out here. We get this from a, a wider look at the Old Testament. It's so that in the resurrection, the family will be raised together. Right? Doesn't, doesn't this mean he's probably not going to be resurrected with his sons and grandchildren? Like he's possibly the last for quite a while that will be buried in this family plot? That's a good question. And another question will be, okay, if they're going to be in Egypt for a while are the people who are in Palestine going to recognize <laughs> once they come back that this land belongs to them? Um, when the Israelites come up out of Egypt, they bring Jacob's, or sorry, Jacob's already taken. They bring Joseph's coffin with them. But you're right. We don't, we don't have any indication that other Israelites in between Jacob and Joseph are also taken back up and buried in Canaan. I don't know if they are or not which leads to larger questions, right? About what the resurrection will be like and how and in what way and where we might be reunited with our loved ones who are in Christ and, and all sorts of questions about, you know, is the resurrection hindered by cremation or other things like that? Well, no. If you want to, to read someone doing a thought experiment, trying to figure out, all the different things that might interfere with the resurrection and whether they do or not, that the end of Augustine's city of God, he spends the last couple chapters thinking out loud about that. And, uh, and he has some pretty wild things that he brings up that I wouldn't have thought of. Right? Like what about in cases of cannibalism right? or someone's, uh, you know, part of someone's body has become part of someone else's body. Well, whose, whose body will it be a part of when they're raised? So anyway, that's a little off the wall. But if God can create the world with a word, right? 
then do we really think that there's anything that we can do that can frustrate his ability to raise the dead in resurrected bodies? I mean, what will that look like for us to be with them? I don't know. We know the sea will give up its dead, that the grave will give up its dead. We know that right, um, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. Right? The church in Thessalonica is, is concerned about the fact that Jesus is supposed to be coming back soon, but there are a whole bunch of believers who have died, and so are they going to miss out on something that we who are alive get to be a part of when Christ returns? And Paul says, no, because they're going to rise first. Right? The trumpet will sound, the dead shall be raised, and we all together will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, not so that we can sit on clouds and play harps for the rest of eternity, but so that we can join in the victory parade as the Lord comes down to the new heavens and the new earth, where we'll be with him forever. All a long-winded way of saying, right? Yeah, Jacob wants to be buried with the family in the family plot in Canaan. At the end of one of the Gospels, I don't know if it's either Matthew or John, at the very end, it says that the graves were open and them that slept the dead walked the streets. Is it the end of Matthew or end of John? In Matthew, it's not quite at the end. They looked and looked and looked. Is that what that meant? Was that historical proof of that actually happened? Or people in Jerusalem and Rome were freaking out because there's dead people walking the streets? Well, Matthew wouldn't write it down if there was no memory of it happening. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. end of Matthew. So. Okay, I couldn't find it the other day for some reason. Okay, thank you. But I would say it's, it's not the resurrection, no, capital no, no, no. T, capital R. It was after. It's a, right, but it's a, it's a foretaste of... The general resurrection. Well, I think it may have been during the crucifixion, around the same time that the temple curtain is torn. Yeah, I think so. It's the end of Matthew. Oh, I I, I couldn't find it the other day. Yeah, not quite the very end. I think it was during crucifixion. Yeah. During crucifixion. Yes, sir. Okay. It's right after Jesus died. So Matthew twenty-seven, verse fifty-two. 52? Yes, sir. 52 and 53. Yeah, the tombs opened mentally godly more men and women who had died came back to life again. Yeah. You wonder if Jacob was one of them. Not to get off the weeds too much, but so historically, archaeologists and stuff, have they tried to find or has anybody found that place where Abraham fought or tried to find that cave that you know of? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And less so the archaeologists and more the guys in the tourism business. Right? Because if they can charge you for coming through the gate to see so-and-so's tomb, right, they can make a lot of money. So, yeah, I don't know that we know for sure where Abraham's tomb is, although we've certainly looked for it. There is a traditional site for Rachel's tomb that's identified and has a big sign and lots of people go visit. And, of course, there are Suggestions for this is the tomb where Christ was buried, and you know, this would be a significant one for people to look for, I would think, for sure, which is maybe why we don't know for sure where it is, right? right? Which I was just curious, yeah, if it was that important, we'd know, right? Yeah, 
So we're in sight of the end of Genesis. Coming to the end of 47, so Israel is in Egypt. They've been made into a fairly large family already. They're finally starting to offer some competition to all their cousins, which have been multiplying like rabbits, right? This has been a, a theme as we've looked at those genealogies so far, right? It'll mention some cousin's genealogy, and they've got like 12 kids, and they're all princes, like Ishmael, right? When, when Abraham has Isaac, right? And Isaac has Jacob and Esau, right? But we're finally 70 persons plus a whole bunch of others that it mentions that we're not counting among the 70. We are down in Egypt in a pattern that imitates Abram, where the promise has just been reaffirmed to Jacob. And then we've gone down into Egypt because of a famine, and we're anticipating, because he's promised it, God's blessing, God's protection, God's provision, and God bringing them up out. We know that we're going to be here for a while. We know that because it's mentioned to Jacob. We know because... It was mentioned to Abraham sometime back, actually. If we look in Genesis 15, which has a lot of things that point forward. But if you remember, the Lord told Abram, this is before his name change, uh, in the midst of that covenant vision that Abram has, the Lord says to him in verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Well, they're sojourning now in a land that's not theirs. They don't yet seem to be servants. They don't yet seem to be afflicted. But we've been here for four minutes, not 400 years. So we have a sense from what we've already been told of what is coming. And we know we're going to end the book of Genesis still in Egypt. But we're waiting to see what the Lord will do in fulfillment of his promises when he brings them out. We know here we're already told that the Lord will bring them out, but they will be afflicted while they're there. That God will judge the nation that they serve and that they will come out with great possessions. Like Abram received all of these gifts from Pharaoh and then was escorted all the way to the border. So the Israelites will plunder the Egyptians. And if you remember that passage in Exodus, right? It's not like they go around robbing their neighbors. They ask their neighbors for things and their neighbors empty out their bank accounts and give it all to them, which actually then becomes part of how the Lord has provided what they need to build the things for the tabernacle and for the service, for the altar that they'll construct in the wilderness. So we know it's coming. We know that the Lord will protect them. But what will that look like? And why don't we end here? Right? What, are we, what are we waiting for that the book of Genesis doesn't end here? Because we're in Egypt. We're protected. Um, he's already sworn that he will take care of his father. And so what's... What's left? Well, the next two chapters, we will see Jacob blessing Joseph's sons specifically, and then all of his sons broadly. 
And then in Genesis 50, we'll see kind of the winding down action as Jacob actually passes. And then everybody takes him up and they go and bury him in Canaan. And then that's going to leave just a little bit unresolved with Joseph's brothers. Because everybody is going to be wondering, okay, now that dad's gone, is the hammer going to come down? Right? Now that dad's not there to protect us, is Joseph going to use this opportunity to get even? All right. We'll pick up with chapter 48 next week. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you for the way Genesis displays the depth and the extent of your care for your people of the way you both use means and work through and above and alongside and even against the natural order of the world and the nature of people. We thank you that you are the one in charge. And we pray that you would teach us to trust you as we see the complexity and the extent of your watchful care over your people and the lengths that you go to, to keep your promises and the things involved in your doing so. Lord, we rejoice in the knowledge that, that their God is our God, that you are a promise keeping God. And we pray that you would encourage us with that knowledge this week. We ask that in Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.